Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. We got a treat for you this week. This guy is um, one of the most interesting and idiosyncratic meditation teachers I am aware of. He's a Jewish guy, grew up in L.A., who then lived for several years as a monk in Japan and uh, is now deeply involved with scientific research into what meditation does to your brain. He's worked with researchers at Harvard and lots of other institutions. His name is Shinzen Young, and he's got a new book called The Science of Enlightenment, and uh, here we go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So I always start the same way, which is, can you just tell me your story? How did you get into meditation in the first place? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and when I was in my early teens, I got fascinated with Asian culture by seeing samurai movies. Now, I'm pretty old. I'm 72 years old. You do so, not look 72. Uh, thank you. I feel very young, <laughs> but... Uh, I do come from another world, really. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 1950s. Eisenhower was the president. And no one in the mainstream culture was interested in Asia. It was not cool. Well, it, because we had just gone to war with Japan. I mean, I was born while my dad was off fighting Japan in the Pacific. Uh, irony of history, I find, that... Um, turned out to be the Japanese that saved my soul. <laughs> and sort of conservative Japanese at that, um, you know, because in Asia, Buddhism is sort of part of the conservative establishment. Here, it might be part of the more liberal uh, wing, but there it's quite a different thing. So it was really old-line Japanese people that ended up making me who I am, um, it makes me think about just history and how things work out. But anyway, I can assure you that in the 1950s, the notion that something from Asia would be relevant and important for mainstream North American culture was completely um, inconceivable. So I've lived to see this incredible transition um, in my lifetime that I never thought when I was a kid would happen. So I was a kid. I saw samurai movies. No one knew about martial arts. No one knew about sushi uh, or karaoke or any of the other gazillion things that have now influenced North American culture. But I was interested. Uh, and uh, I found out that they have ethnic Japanese school in Los Angeles. It's parallel to uh, American public school. And just like Jewish kids go to Hebrew school, Japanese-American kids, their parents make them go to Japanese school. So I decided I was going to go to Japanese school. After your regular school? After my regular school. And yes, indeed, in addition to my Hebrew school. <laughs> <laughs> so I was lucky. I, I had a very, very enriched environment as a teenager, thanks to my parents that encouraged that. So I, um, when I graduated from Venice High, I was a nerdy nobody. 
Uh, but that same week, I graduated from Sawtell Japanese Language Institute, and I was the class valedictorian because it was very rare for a Caucasian person to know any Japanese, and I was essentially native by that time. So I'd grown up bilingual and bicultural in Los Angeles, and that led to my going to Japan. And then in Japan, I encountered real-life Buddhist monks, and they seemed to have a secret. They sort of knew something, uh, and they wouldn't I just got this vibe. They're not going to force this on me, but there's this hand outstretched that if I was interested, they knew something about happiness that most people don't know. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. So when I graduated from college, I was going to go into graduate school, and I decided to do Buddhism at the University of Wisconsin. Now we're in the 60s. The Vietnam War is raging. And there's money to study Buddhism from, uh, of all things, the Department of Defense because it was relevant to um, our interests in Southeast Asia. Buddhist monks were a political force. Yeah, they were letting themselves on fire. Yeah, and lots of things were happening. So I got a three-year grant to do graduate school uh, with an academic specialty in Buddhism leading to a Ph.D. And... Um, then in order to get that Ph.D., though, I had to go back to Japan and live in a Buddhist monastery. And I was going to spend a year, do research, come back and become an academic scholar of Buddhism. But instead, I spent three years, got involved in meditation practice, realized I'd never understand this subject unless I had an experiential knowledge, took a leave of absence, from my department, never went back to Buddhist academic studies, but got interested in, is it possible to combine what I consider the best of the East, which is the technology of meditation, with the best of the West, which is the scientific perspective, I got the idea, wow, I've sort of lived my fantasy. I've, I've reached the pinnacle of the mountain that is Asia, and I have found on the top of this mountain this thing that is universal for the whole world, the thing they did better than anyone, which was systematic cultivation and exploration of sensory experience leading to spiritual experience. Now I ask myself, do I see a comparable peak something equally universal, equally powerful and impressive to this. And I looked at the peak of Western civilization and saw science, logic and evidence and experience uh, uh, and experimentally based um, method using modeling for mathematics. Oh, my God, what this has done. So a natural question is, well, what if we can mate these two worlds. Mm. Is there a basis for that? And it occurred to me that there would be a natural basis, and I decided to devote my life to that. And that was in the early 1970s, and here we are. Okay, so there are many things I want to follow up on from that um, nice little summary. But so let me get back into your personal chronology a little earlier, because you went to Japan and you really threw yourself into... Uh, learning Buddhism, not 
from a textbook standpoint, but from an experiential standpoint. And you did some pretty crazy stuff, uh, <laughs> including this 100 days of solitude where you had to bathe yourself in ice water. And so t- t- talk me, talk to me about why you did that and what what you actually did. Well, uh, of course, we love to tell these war stories, you know, about the intensities of practice that we've experienced and so forth. Um, But I think it's also important for your listeners to know that you don't necessarily have to do uh, industrial strength uh, uh, ascetical practices or very, very intense practices in order to uh, have deep experience with your meditation. However, exposing yourself to those things can push the envelope because you're in a a situation where you have a lot of forces that are supporting you. And now you're going through a certain intensity and you bring concentration, sensory clarity, equanimity, mindfulness properties to that intense, challenging experience. And as the result of that, insight and transformation occurs. So it's a way of pushing the envelope. Um, But it's important to realize that for the average person, um, life is going to present those challenges. Hardships. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff's going to happen. You're going to get sick. You're going to be injured. There's going to be emotional things in your life, behavioral things in your life where where you're facing really intense challenges. So if you can remember to do practice in those circumstances— or if you have someone that will support you in doing that, then you'll get comparable results. But what some people do is they don't wait for life to do it. They say, okay, I'm just going to take it on and um, do the work now so that when the stuff happens in life, I'll be vaccinated against future Mm -hmm. suffering. So that's the way you can look at it. It sounds intense, but relative to the kind of stuff that almost everyone will eventually have to face, it's actually not that intense. It's, a, it's like getting a vaccination. It's a manageable dose of real challenge that's going to change the fabric of your consciousness so that when uh, the really big stuff happens in daily life, you'll be able to escape into it if you, if you can't escape from it. So I would just want to say, you know, before I go into saying, oh, well, they do this and they do that and whatever, as people think, oh, if that's what you have to do to get enlightenment, then I think I'll wait for another lifetime. So (laughs) it's not that way. Sooner or later, the monastery is going to come to everyone listening to this this podcast. Monastery is going to come to you. Um, But some people go to a monastery. And in the monastery, yes, you may have sleep deprivation or you may have to sit through physical discomfort, your legs hurt. Or in the case of traditional Shingon training in Japan, um, they do a lot with cold, uh, uh, like squatting under waterfall in winter and chanting mantras and things like that or other kinds of practice. Now, what what they made me do is like, break the ice on this cistern. This is in the dead of winter. And uh, then I had to bail that cold, to get a big uh, bucket of that cold water and squat and like 
throw it over me a bunch of times and had to do that three times a day. And um, it was so cold that the water would actually freeze as soon as it hit the floor. So I'd be like sliding around on ice, (laughs) trying not to fall. And in Japan, they don't use big towels. They use little towels, like a little washcloth. That's how you dry yourself. So the washcloth is like freezing in my hand as I'm trying to dry myself with it. Um, Did you get sick? You must have gotten sick. No, I did not get sick at all, actually, um, during that time. In fact, okay, I did something like that for 100 days. And yeah, it had a certain intensity. But after I completed that, my best friend said, okay, now that you've done 100 days, you should go meet my teacher. Um, my teacher did 12 years of that. Oh. And I did. I met, I met that man, and it was amazing. He was one of the uh, marathon monks of Mount Hie. You can actually see them on the YouTube. They do 12 years in isolation, including things like sit for nine days uh, without any food or water or moving. They actually do that, like humans. I never did anything like that, but humans do that. So, what is the point? The point is it's the what, vaccination. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the only point. Um, but you don't get. You, amazingly, you tip, typically don't get sick. Um, and in that practice, the the Mount Hie practice, um, they make a vow that if they do get sick and can't continue. Even one day out of the 12 years, they'll take their own life. Now, okay, that's over the top. But I met a man who had done that, okay? and Who had done the 12 the years. The whole yeah, 12 yeah. years of training. He presumably and, had not taken his own life. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So um, for me, I wouldn't have had to take my life, but I would have had to be very embarrassed that I failed, and I didn't want to do that. So it's very interesting. You say, why would someone do this? Okay, I did something. This guy did something, an order of magnitude more challenging. So what is the result of this? Well, the result is that you become the kind of human being whose happiness is not dependent on conditions. Um, Because you know that no matter what, would become of your mind and body, you know the place that you will go to uh, wherein that's going to be okay. But that's not the real reason why people do this. If it was just that, it would, in a sense, be sort of selfish. Um, I asked him, would you have actually taken your life if you could not complete the, the the 12 years? And he said, yes, I would have um, because the practice allowed that, that degree of intensity allowed me to become what I am now. And um, I would want future generations to be able to do the practice. And knowing that that's the tradition allows for that to happen. Mm. Now, once again, the big my big codicil on all of this is you don't have to do this intensity in order to get results. You can work smart. You can take it in manageable doses and use clever techniques so that you can do, get the same results without necessarily doing this brute force algorithm that is the traditional training. 
On the other hand, I said they don't just do it to become a person who's happy independent of conditions. What do they really do it for? Well, I saw the pattern over and over again um, in many different teachers from many traditions and even spanning different races. It's always the same pattern. They do a period of this intense practice. They become a person who has transcended their mind-body identity to a certain degree. And then what do they do? They just are available. They're available. I didn't just meet this man. I hung out with him. I stayed with him in his temple. And I saw what does he do day to day. What he does day to day is he's just there. And people come with their problems. And they come to talk to him. And they know that they're talking to someone who has seen beyond. So whatever their problem may be, his existence is a source of inspiration and hope for them. And um, that's what they do. They're just there for the general public to interact with. Maybe he gives advice or encouragement or teaches meditation. Um, this allows him to be of optimal service to his community. That's how the tradition works. So really, the reason that he would have taken his life is not for some weird fanat religious fanaticism. It's out of a service from love to others. And this going through intense training and then making yourself available, this is, to my understanding, what you've done. You're a very available dude. Yeah, I called you up a year ago because our mutual friend Yanush, who's in the next room, connected us, and you just talked to me for like an hour, and then had me do a little meditation and call you back, and, and you do this all the time, is my understanding from people who are followers of yours. So I'll stop talking, but am I right that you have followed this model? That's my role model. That's what I saw over and over again. Um, and so hopefully you take the good parts of what your teacher showed you, and if there are bad parts, you don't take those. This was one of the important good parts that I saw over and over again in teachers. This is what you do. Uh, you become that extraordinary person so that you can go into the marketplace and be available to everyone. I think that's amazing. I want to linger, if you don't mind, uh, for a little while back on uh, on your personal journey from back in, before you got to the Shenzhen you are now. Um, because in your book, The Science of Enlightenment, which I recommend to everybody, uh, you talk about a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of other interesting things that happened to you. Um, you talk about uh, a period of your practice. Let me step back for a second. You talk about the fact that Strange things happen in people's meditation practices when we get into the deep end of the pool. And for you, one of the strange things that happened, just one of them, was that you had a period of time where you were visualizing, you were hallucinating in real life. And the hallucinations were kind of horrifying. So can you pick up the story from there? Yes. Not everyone goes through that kind of experience, but some people do. You can think of 
the meditation journey in a lot of different ways. One way to think of it is it's a journey from surface to source. Uh, okay, let me just stop you on that for a yeah. second, <clears throat> because you 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 lean right into this in the introduction of your book uh, to your book, which is you on the one hand you, you, the book's called the science of enlightenment. You're into science, but you're also into enlightenment, and so you kind of straddle these two worlds where you're really into um, empirical facts and also into um, uh, as you say mystical schmistical um, and so source is a word you use quite a bit and you capitalize the S and for people like me who are uh, congenital skeptics uh, that that's a little risky so what do you mean when you say source like they say I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Usually when people say that, they mean yeah, the exact they, they, opposite. They, they mean, that's, that's why I'm being facetious now. <laughs> but I actually am happy you asked me that question. Because what I'll give you a little inside information about teachers. We are creatures of habit, just like anyone. You just get in a habit of talking a certain way, and pretty soon it's just you don't quite realize that it may have certain connotations that are weird, actually. So what I mean by source is not necessarily a theological entity. Um, Neuroscience will tell us that any sensory experience that we have arises in real time. Something, uh, there's a beginning of a neuronal process And then a few hundred milliseconds later, something else happens. And a few hundred milliseconds later, something else happens. And then at some point, there's a conscious experience. So there's uh, an initial moment when the nervous system begins to process a sensory event, such as a physical sight, a mental image, a physical sound. Uh, a mental conversation, a physical or emotional body sensation, anything inner or outer that we see here feel um, <clears throat> has to arise over a period of time, uh, uh, maybe 2,000 milliseconds, okay, which would be like two seconds from the beginning of processing to the time you have a conscious experience, or maybe less, maybe 500 milliseconds. But there's that first 10 or 100 milliseconds of processing that occurs um, that for the great majority of human beings is unconscious. You're not yet conscious. Um, That's pre-conscious processing. And at that level, the nervous system is just an event in nature. It's like ripples spreading on a lake. It just happens. And then a few hundred milliseconds later, we have the experience of a solidified self or world. So one of the important effects of meditation is that we become conscious of that primordial pre-conscious processing, and it has a taste. And it doesn't matter whether the experience is inner or outer, pleasant or unpleasant. Down there, initially, it always has exactly the same taste. And it is the taste of 
effortless, dynamic, fulfilling tranquility. Um, so that's the source. The uh, an awareness of the primordial perfection that precedes each ordinary moment of experience for every human being, whether they're aware of it or not. With respect, and I have great respect for you, I think some people are going to hear that and say, what is that dude talking about? Probably. <laughs> but just run through, um, run through the process, okay? Um, I'm talking about the fact that the nervous system Arise, uh, processes things in time over a period of time. So if I'm sitting here right now, I feel my butt on the chair. I feel my arm moving right. as I gesticulate. That's I right. see you. And we're all having this constant flow of experience super quick. That's right. But quick is a relative term. So if we start to talk about milliseconds, that's one one-thousandth of a second, before you have that conscious experience of a sound or a touch, there's maybe 10 or 20 milliseconds where it's being processed below the threshold of awareness. In a, a meditator, the threshold of awareness has been lowered so that you actually detect what that's like. You're seeing what happens between the arising of sensations? At the very instant of the arising, just before it's conscious, in the average person, it's already conscious in you. Because we meditate, well, I, I, I am not one of the meditators who can see this type of thing because my telescope is not fully built, but highly experienced meditators can see, have sensory clarity uh, from years of practice, uh, and they can see with more fine grain. And what they're seeing in between the arisings is the source. Or I have simply chosen to use the word source for that. But we could choose to use some other word. We could use um, the... Um, uh, Void? Uh, oh, yeah, you could use many, many words. Um, but they don't have to necessarily be spiritual. You could just say you are aware of pre-conscious processing, and all pre-conscious processing has more or less the same taste, and it's the taste of freedom. But Okay, so what do you mean by that? Freedom from what? Um, <clears throat> when you, con uh, to the extent that you can abide uh, with that, to that extent, even uncomfortable experiences, they still hurt, but they don't cause suffering. This is happiness without, uh, not dependent upon This conditions. is an important component in happiness independent of conditions. The ability to experience um, uh, discomfort, physical, emotional, mental, in a way that's so fluid that it hurts and therefore is part of the richness of life and motivates and directs, but it doesn't cause suffering. Therefore, it doesn't uh, obscure the perfection of the moment, and it doesn't drive and distort. So the ability to ha have what could be called a complete experience of discomfort is um, uh, it's a paradoxical thing because it uh, 
sometimes you can't avoid discomfort. Sometimes, actually, you should not avoid discomfort. There are discomforts that we should be experiencing, but still we don't want that to drive and distort our our behavior or obscure the perfection of the moment. So there's a way to experience discomfort where um, it fulfills its role in nature, but you're also okay at a deep level, and that's an important facet of happiness independent of conditions. So anyway, to get back to your original question, I just throw out the word source, but you could just say um, the moment that precedes each conscious experience. It's where things seem to come from, right? This is why I call it the source. Um, but that's just a word. You could just substitute nature. Maybe you could use a word like entropy. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being that, in fact, what I am somewhat mystically deciding to call the source is just the nervous system tasting its own uh, free energy and entropy that is the what's behind the spontaneity of everything in nature, according to hard-nosed uh, well, many things in nature, according to hard-nosed science. It may just be that. So there's other very empirical uh, and evidence-based words that could be used. Unfortunately or fortunately, I just got in the habit of calling it the source. Now, it is true that um, that's what it's called in the Jewish mystical tradition, and I'm a little influenced by that, but that's a whole other story. So anyway, if we say that there is sort of this thing that we can find um, that's always there in everyone, and let's just call it the source, <laughs> and then there's ordinary experience, which is what we're consciously aware of. Um, so if we're making a journey from being only trapped in ordinary experience to the ability to have ordinary experience and then also have this experience of the source. So one way to think about it is that it's a journey from the surface to the source. And when you make that journey, some people in the intermediate realm between ordinary awareness and this formless effortless doing that is that I call the source. Some people encounter unusual phenomena, and that happened to me, but it doesn't happen to everyone. So this is why you very skillfully brought us back to the original, original question, which, which then led to a digression, which you pulled us out of, uh, which was about hallucinations. So your hallucinations were giant insects, which you would see during waking life. Yes, it was 24-7. It was all my waking hours. And it, um, we technically call this in Japanese makyo. And the fact that we have a technical term um, for it indicates it's not an uncommon experience, although it's not a universal experience. By the way, Christian mystics called them uh, phantasmata, and they also had a term for it and knew about it because – the types of things that happen in Buddhist practice also happen in Christian, Jewish, Islamic, Native American, and other contemplative practices. So these phenomena tend to have technical terms that are known all over the world, uh, but in whatever the language is. So in Japanese, it's called makyo. So 
Um, in my case, it was very intense. It was giant insects um, that uh, I saw everywhere. Whenever I, I would just be like walking to school, you know, I was in graduate school, and there would be these like giant insects, right? Um, and did you react to them? Well, first of all, I had a conceptual paradigm to understand what was going on. I knew, hey, this is Machio. I've read about it. I've heard talks about it. It happens as a sign that you're getting closer to the formless, quote, source. So that's the good news. I also knew that what all the teachers say about it, which is that um, if you develop cravings and aversions for it, it will um, slow down your progress in this journey that you're trying to make, which is a plumb line from, I'm going to call it surface to source. Um, it's going to slow down your progress. So you experience it as any other sensory phenomenon. If make I, a note of it. Uh, you just experience it like uh, anything else. If I see something in the physical world and I have an emotional reaction to it, okay, there's C and then there's feel in my body. If I have an opinion in my mental talk space, then there's internal hearing. So now I'm seeing giant bugs. And uh, it yes, it caused fear and it caused sadness. Fear because, of course, it's like scary. Sadness because these were the insects that I killed when I was a little boy uh, making my bug collection before I got interested in Japan. I was the Eichmann of the entomology world. Oh, no. Yeah. So I knew it was karma. It was things I had done. So I had to, you know, I felt sad about that. And um, so I had emotions, and um, I would simply untangle it. What part is visual? What part is mental talk? What part is fear in the body? What part is sadness in the body? So you just keep applying uh, your meditation technique um, uh, to uh, whatever comes up, however ordinary or uh, bizarre it might be. And in this case, it was bizarre, but I had been well taught. I had a, a paradigm for what it is, a model, and I had a recommended uh, best practices, which is just deconstructed sensorially. And um, so after a while, it went away and just was never a problem again. Never anything like that was a problem again. Do you believe, because some uh, mystics and Buddhists believe that between surface and source, in other words, when you start meditating and, and go deeper into your own mind, you can develop uh, uh, superpowers. Uh, do, you, do you think that's possible? Um, objective powers that exist uh, in the physical world that could be measured in a laboratory and that are preternatural. They're beyond uh, uh, what natural science says is possible. I suspect that is highly unlikely. I don't know for sure. Um, but if I had to shoot from the hip, I would say it is highly unlikely that there are such supernatural powers. Can one have a sensory experience of something like that that's very meaningful for a person? Absolutely. 
but whether we can confirm that by the rigorous canons of science, I'm fairly skeptical. You can also see from experiences like this why people would believe in multiple lives. I'm not, and by the way, I don't necessarily believe in that, but I can see how these kinds of experiences would tend to make you think that way. Um, For example, these were the insects I killed uh, when I was a little boy. Um, I can imagine that if I hadn't worked that through um, all those decades ago, that would still sort of be down there, right? And maybe when I was in a, a dissolving at the time of death and the surface consciousness can't be held anymore, who knows? It's not hard to imagine that that material would have presented itself. And then one would extrapolate on that and say, well, then that's going to lead to, that's going to be the last thing you see in this lifetime, and that's going to now lead to 10,000 insect existences before you work off your karma. I emphatically want to say I do not necessarily believe that. Um, And I would never encourage a person to believe that. But I can see how these sensory experiences would tend to make you think along those lines. And thank you for that. Did, did, uh, as your practice continued, post-insects, et cetera, et cetera, did you achieve what you believe to be enlightenment? And what is enlightenment? If by enlightenment we, we mean um, a fundamental shift in paradigm about who you are, a kind of self-understanding at the deepest level that um, uh, fundamentally and permanently changes um, your relationship to the notion of self versus other. That's what I mean by enlightenment. So if we mean something like that, um, yes. And was it The answer would be yes. Was it one orgasmic moment of change or was it a gradual process or was it a series of big moments? This is very interesting because the tendency is to think that it's going to be a a big spiritual O, okay, big spiritual orgasm. Um, It is true that for some people it happens suddenly, but it has been my experience as a teacher for decades trying to lead other people to this that um, in many cases, it just sneaks up on people very gradually, so gradually that they acclimatize to it and may not realize how enlightened they've become until you sort of point it out to them. And there are some famous Zen stories about this kind of thing. So it can happen suddenly to sometimes, and there have been many books written about that, people describing their experiences in the sudden paradigm. But I would say in my teaching, it more typically happens gradually. However, my personal experience was sudden. It was sudden and dramatic like in the books. So can you describe it? Sure. Um, I hadn't meditated all day that day, and it was like 10 o'clock. And um, I thought, oh, 
gee, I didn't do formal meditation today. How old were you? Um, how old? I, th- I tend to remember this by another criterion. I think this happened in 1974. So I'm 72 now. So it was a long time ago. And you had been meditating for a while at this point? Four years. Oh, so not that long. No. But you had done you had done pretty intense stuff. Yeah, this was after having been in a monastery in Japan. So I'm I'm a little fuzzy about time, but I think it was in my fourth year of practice. Um <clears throat> but that was after three years in a monastery. So I was probably back in the States about a year, I'm guessing. So I hadn't meditated that day and it was in a formal way, and it was like, hey, it's nighttime. So you you know what a zafu is. It's a, a meditation cushion. So I trotted out my meditation cushion. And so I sort of sat down on the cushion. And this thought came out of nowhere. Where are my boundaries? And then out of nowhere came the perception there are none. There is no boundary between inside and outside. And that was a perception. It wasn't a thought. It's like they're not there. They are not there. And it was so shocking that I actually stood up. I just stood up. And I just started to walk around the room. And there was just no separation between inside and outside. And um, But who's... Who's noticing the lack of separation? It's got to be you. Well, that gets us into a long and very interesting conversation. Um, That's a little bit of the hypnosis of language there. If you want to go down that way, we can. But uh, and I would happily do so. But maybe I should finish this narrative, (laughs) and then we'll do that. Um, But it's a it's an important question. It's a deep question. Um, and it's definitely one that I'm happy to talk about. But if we could, we'd just like uh, put a pin in that one for a moment, <laughs> um, uh, just to finish the thought. So uh, I had this. Um, see, the fact that you use the word "I" doesn't necessarily mean you're experiencing "I" as a thing. It just means you're articulating certain phonemes. <laughs> it's flatus vocis. It's just air coming out. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. (laughs) It's very hard. The Buddha talked about tathagata, meaning this process. Um, But I don't want to say this process all the time. I just use the word I because sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So anyway, I (laughs) um, had this negative thought and the walls laughed at me for having such a stupid thought. Now, that sounds like maybe schizophrenia, but it wasn't, okay? It was just, that's how the oneness presented itself to me. I knew that the walls aren't sentient beings, but there was just no perceived separation. And it didn't go away just because I got up and was like walking around. I wasn't doing a formal meditation technique anymore. It was just like, whoa, it's there. And I just turned on the television, watched some cartoons, 
And that didn't change it. And then I thought, well, this is amazing, but I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be messed up again, you know. But when I woke up the next day, it was still there and it never left. But you, if I recall from reading your book, you had been smoking a little weed, right? That was a different occasion. Oh, it was? That was before this. That was a a little taste of something. Okay, so this was not, there were no foreign substances involved in this? I don't think, that's probably not in this case, yeah. And it never went away? This never went away. So you still don't feel like you have any boundaries? Well, it just grew and grew and grew over the decades, just deepened and deepened. But yes, it, it, so it's a permanent change in perspective. I, I'm, I'm still struggling to understand how that – I mean, you still have to put your pants on. You still have to make dentist appointments and all that stuff. So, so you're, there's still a you there, right? And you still have to know um, <clears throat> when you're walking in a crowd – who you are as opposed to everybody yes, else around yes. you. Yes, and I've had decades of driving an automobile and never got even one <laughs> moving violation. So clearly you can manipulate the material world just fine. Um, it's a um, uh, uh, The activity of self is freed up when the somethingness of self goes away would be one way that you might try to put it. I know it seems like wordsmithery, like people playing with words to try to sound paradoxical. And I used to, I used to hate it when my teachers would say stuff like this, what I'm saying now. <laughs> it's like, why do they have to talk in that weird way? Why can't they just be straightforward? And now I hear myself blabbering the same paradoxes, and, but at least now I know why. They weren't doing this intentionally. They weren't doing it to try to impress people or be poetic. They, it's just this is the best we can do with words. You're just trying to describe something that's very hard to describe. Um, yes, exactly. So um, it's a... Um, I can only give metaphors. If you are in a certain traditional culture, you see a phenomenon which looks very much like a monster is eating up the moon. You can actually see it taking one bite after another after another into the moon. You see it happening in the sky. And you freak out because a monster is eating up the moon. Um, if you belong to a different culture, you see exactly that phenomenon. Um, but you have a different interpretation. The shadow of the earth is being cast on the surface of the moon. It's a lunar eclipse. But if you don't know what a lunar eclipse is, what that mechanism is, it very much looks like a monster is eating up the moon. And it's a source of huge consternation in many traditional cultures. So what's the difference? There's a difference in paradigm, a difference in understanding. But the phenomenon's the same. It looks exactly the same. Nothing's changed. But your relationship to it has changed. There's an understanding and 
there's a reduction of suffering that is very dramatic. After, quote, enlightenment, if we want to use that word, um, everything is the same. But there's an understanding. Self arises, mental images arise, mental talk arises, physical and emotional body sensations arise. It's all the same. But there's a, a shift that has taken place and there's no going back. Because once you know that it's not a monster eating up the moon, then you could see the monster, but it's not your go-to perception. You'd have to actually, like, intentionally try to see the monster. Conjure the monster. Yeah. So this, everything's the same, but it's different. Um, maybe that metaphor will be a little helpful. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. The, the the enlightenment you're describing, one where the walls are laughing at you or you have no idea where your boundaries are, I mean, why would we want that? That sounds a little, more than a little destabilizing. Um, we would want it because it allows you to experience physical and emotional discomfort um, with less suffering. Because you don't, per you don't take it personally. That's the voice of insight speaking right through you right now. Okay, <laughs> that's a mini mini enlightenment talking right. You don't expect Dan much right more now. of this. <laughs> that, that's probably the end of it, right there. Well, it's my job to hear when the wisdom function is speaking through a person, and it just spoke through you. That's exactly why. But it's not just that. If it were that, if it only delivered relief from suffering, uh, it would be worth the price of admission. And by the way, the price of admission is payable by anyone listening to this program. It's, you don't have to go to a monastery and expose yourself to these things. Um, there is a re reasonable structure that anyone living a North American lifestyle could establish for themselves that would make it likely that this would happen for them. A little bit of formal practice each day, maybe 10 minutes or so. Um, 
a little bit of intentional practice during the day as you're bopping around in the world. Uh, retreats. Now, most people can't get away for residential retreats, but I have something I call the home practice program, which is like telephone-based micro-retreats, four-hour retreats. Well, you can, most people can do that. So I mentioned three factors, a little bit, maybe 10 minutes of formal practice each day, a little bit, maybe a half dozen micro hits of peppering the ordinary day as you're walking from place to place in the day. Then retreats, but if you can't do residential retreats, you can do four-hour micro retreats through uh, conference call. We do it through freeconferencecall.com. Um, now, there's one other important element, though. You would have to find at least one competent personal coach, someone with a track record in leading people to this. And there are hundreds of teachers uh, that exist now that are competent to do that. So if you sort of line up those four ducks in a row and keep it up throughout your life, an ordinary person has not a guarantee but a good probability that somewhere along the line, before they die, they'll, they'll come to what I'm describing. So I see it as feasible. But anyway, why you would want it is, for one thing, reduction of suffering because who wants to suffer? Next time you are in physical, emotional, or mental distress, how valuable is not having to identify with this? Uh, but it's more than that. It's an optimal place from which to stand uh, in, uh, upon which you can stand, a kind of platform upon which you can stand and optimally improve your behavior in the world, how you carry yourself, your habits. Um, it's, it's very helpful in letting go of negative habits and in cultivating new positive habits for um, just action and how you carry yourself in the world. So it's also, it helps optimize positive behavior change. It reduces suffering. So those are two huge things. And there's one more thing. It is not guaranteed, but there is a strong tendency if the boundaries have fallen away for you, there's a strong tendency that you're going to become a more compassionate, caring person because sort of seems like you're looking at yourself all the time. And so it... You mean when you see other people, you're seeing yourself. Yeah. And so it is not guaranteed, but it will tend to facilitate a life of service. So that's why a person wouldn't want it for themselves so they suffer less. And... um so that they can be a better person by the ordinary canons of their culture and ultimately so that they can optimize their ability to be of service to others. Okay, so I'll make no bones about this, that I want what you're describing for sure. Um, But let me ask you uh, two questions. You can take them in whatever order you want. Um, The question I was going to ask you as you were speaking was, okay, well, if I'm an ambitious guy, which I am, um... And I'm a family man. I have a baby and a wife, and I care deeply about both of those things. I would put the family above my career, but um, and I want to keep them going. 
uh, is enlightenment. What you're describing is that, does that work? Is the process of of uh, attaining it and the life one lives once one has attained it compatible with a busy uh, life in the world that includes career and family? That was the question I was going to ask you. But then you said, "It's enlightenment is no guarantee of compassion," and it got me thinking about your teacher. Whose name what, is one of my teachers. one of your teachers, Sasaki Roshi. Had, there have been allegations that he sexually abused his followers or harassed his followers. He's no longer with us. So, and here was a guy who a lot of people agree was enlightened, and yet he did some things that a lot of people would agree uh, were not so cool. So, how does that coexist with enlightenment? That's confusing to a lot of people. So I'm, I just threw two huge questions at you, but I, they're inevitable outcropping of what you, of the paragraphs you had uttered uh, before you stopped talking. So I'll let you take them in whatever order you want. You have a remarkable ability to re- keep in mind, unlike almost anybody, anybody I've ever interviewed, to allow me to throw you down all these tributaries and then to always just come back. So I feel confident <laughs> with you, but pretty much you alone, in asking you two huge questions and letting you uh, find your way to answer well, both of them. <clears throat> um, one of my main paradigms is expansion and contraction, which actually I got from Sasaki Roshi. Um, So um, expansion and contraction. Contractively, the answer to your first question is really short. Yes. (laughs) Hell yes. (laughs) How so? Um, Well, I actually tangibly outlined four things that a person would need to do in order to make that likely. Yes. And they're all doable by anyone. So that's how so. Okay. That's as simple as that. I just keep thinking about the fact that the Buddha, in order to get his enlightenment, left his wife and child. Yes, but there are many examples of uh, highly enlightened householders that had highly responsible jobs. Um, For example, there's a teacher in India. uh, uh, He's passed away also. uh, Goenka, Mr. Goenka. Um, So... He was definitely one of the very deep mindfulness teachers of the 20th century. Um, but he also um, maintained a, an enormous uh, um, financial empire. He was a multimillionaire. Um, and so he was able to have a large Indian family <laughs> – and um, have the, the, all the responsibilities that go with that and uh, oversee a very large business competently and yet be a very deeply liberated person. And his teacher was uh, similar. His teacher wasn't a monk. Uba uh, Kin was a high government official in Burma. He was the accountant general of Burma and same deal. Had a family, had a, a big job, um, was able to do it, do all of that, and be very liberated. So, this is what a mathematician would call an existence proof: the fact that an actual example exists. In fact, many examples exist. Proves it is theoretically possible. So, I would say, 
that's why. Hell yes, you you can do that, and um, most of my students are in that are in that category. Um, now, your second question is not a quick answer. As much as people would like a quick answer to these kinds of things, it is very, very complicated. Um, And we could go into the details um, happily, but it's going to probably not be in our time frame to really give this the attention it should get. Um, So let's just try to make a first pass, understanding that I'm going to leave out a lot, a lot. Um, I'm actually in a sort of bad position because I can see all the sides of this thing. I can see them all at once because of a lifetime of involvement and because of the fact that I grew up half Japanese culturally, even though my race may be something else. So I just, I see a lot. And I see that people want simple, quick answers that aren't nuanced um, and then start to get uncomfortable if you start to, like, try to give a big picture. So um, let me try to give a quick answer, a relatively quick answer. Um, I can't address it from the issue of compassion because different individuals and cultures may have a different idea of what constitutes compassion. But I can address it from a a broader perspective, which is there is a dimension to this practice that is liberation from the mind and body. That is a dimension to the practice. And there is a dimension to the practice which is becoming an admirable human being in terms of how you carry yourself in the world. These are related. There is a, a strong trend for people that become liberated to also become admirable, but it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. And I know we would like it to be guaranteed because we want the universe to be set up in such a way that enlightenment is some sort of perfection. But it isn't. It's just a shift in paradigm. Well, I shouldn't say just. It's like the most important thing that happens to a person. But it's still a shift in paradigm. And in order for that to be translated into a shift in behavior, other factors may be necessary. Other factors may be necessary. Sometimes that paradigm shift is enough. The person becomes, my phrase is, admirable by the ordinary canons of society, of their society. Many times it just happens, but not in in my experience, not inevitably. Other factors enter in. What are the other factors? Well, um, uh, you can have guidelines to behavior that you take seriously, general guidelines. 
you can um, keep the feedback channels open so that you can get um, information from everyone around you about how you're carrying yourself in the world. I call that keeping the feedback channels open, not just to some people, but to everyone so you can get a consensus of how you are in the world. Um, you may need um, behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure to help you make behavior changes, 12-step program or a therapist or a counselor. So these are factors that are not practice factors. The fact that you are a person that individually has feedback channels open to you or that institutionally has feedback channels open to you, that's not a practice issue. That's a how you structure your life issue. Um, whether you take certain precepts or uh, guidelines for behavior seriously or not, that's sort of a, a personal value thing. So what can happen is that sometimes a teacher will become so good at the liberation aspect that they de-emphasize these other aspects. And in my way of thinking, people would probably disagree with me, some people, but I think that that in general is not a good idea, that that's a toxic combination. And so when I've seen the scandals and the problems that have developed among many teachers, actually, I ask myself, okay, what causes this and what can we do to make sure it, it doesn't happen more or again? And I think it's caused by overly emphasizing one dimension of the practice and it's caused by having a personal and um, institutional setup where you can't get feedback from a wide range of people in your world. So I decided that, okay, let's just make sure that we always talk about these other structures whenever we're teaching people liberation practices. And that should militate against these kinds of problems developing. But in your, in your book, if I read it correctly, you're of the view that enlightenment, whatever that means. Um, well, actually, we sort of yeah, said what we, it we means did. within this context. <clears throat> within this context, right. Yeah. So enlightenment, or any other word you want to use, could really uh, help mend many of the world's big problems, could be a, a, a very positive force in a world with deep problems, divisions. Um, uh, but is that really true, given what you just said, and given all of these Buddhist teachers and other spiritual leaders uh, who apparently are highly attained meditators who act in abusive ways? The... Um Important thing is to see the big picture. If you average over all people that have done practice, there will be, I'm relatively sure, 
a general trend that people become dramatically better human beings as the result of practice in general and enlightenment in the sense that we're using it here in specific. So um, there is a general tendency in all aspects of human culture for people with psychopathic tendencies to rise to the top. You see it in politics. You see it wherever there's a power situation. So we shouldn't be surprised that that general tendency also presents itself in the world of uh, leadership uh, among, you know, in spiritual teachers. But once again, I think if you actually took careful statistics over all teachers, you would find that most of them are dramatically better people than they would have been otherwise. But it's very easy to see the salient counterexamples. And I think one of the reasons is that, um, that maybe in general people with those kinds of tendencies tend to rise in organizations. Um, but it's also true that the traditional organizations uh, tend to be set up in a way to prevent peer-like feedback from students so that they're sort of trapped in an institution where they have enormous power uh, but can't really get normal feedback. So I think there are a lot of reasons why these problems have developed. Um, but I think that the mechanism of liberation, by and large, big picture-wise, um, is um, an enormous, probably the biggest positive force on the planet. And and just talk, say a little bit more about how you think it could be, how, how this force could be harnessed and, and, and whether you think it will happen. Because one of the things you also say in the book is that one of the, I think you, you, you call it, you call the sort of increasing adoption of meditation bittersweet sweet because it's great that it's happening, bitter because you think most people really won't do it because it's just kind of a pain. Um, uh, so do you really think enough people will do this thing that it could change the court, the arc of human history? Well, my bittersweet comment was actually about myself, uh, what, how life is for me. The sweet part is, well, meditation has been very, very good to me, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the bitter part is I realize that the same could be true for most human beings, but won't probably yet at this point in human history. But I would say that um, meditation delivers um, what religion purports to deliver, okay? It delivers it more intensely without um, the need for uh, irrational beliefs um, so that you can have a, an evidence and logic-based life like a hard-nosed scientist and get profound spiritual transformations without having to sacrifice 
an evidence and logic-based view of the world. Now, to me, that's the best of both possibilities. It delivers all the goodies of religion and more um, without you having to sacrifice logic and evidence. So it would seem to me that this is the better mousetrap that humanity will eventually uh, adopt um, if we're able to survive for a few more centuries. I would tend to think that although in my lifetime most human beings won't meditate, um, it's now known and available and there are hundreds of people competent to teach it um, and its results are being uh, confirmed by the uh, rigorous standards of clinical science and even basic science is being applied to it. So given that, if somehow we can hang on for another couple hundred years, which some people will say, well, maybe we can't because we're going to hell in a handbasket quickly, but if we can just not have a catastrophic collapse of human civilization for a few hundred more years, I would suspect that the forces of diffusion would simply spread this and it would be the new paradigm for humanity. Um, now you could say, well, but 200 years is a long time, but not really, not by Darwin, not by evolution. It's nothing. So, but you could still say, well, but we may not have the 200 years. We may not have, you know, 50 years given stuff that's going on. Well, maybe, um, but there could be a game changer also that would speed things up. Right now, science is turning its lens towards enlightenment. It doesn't have an answer yet, but the process has begun. If we were to have a scientific breakthrough that would reveal new things about enlightenment that are deep and important that none of the masters of the past could have known because you need science to know them. I'm not saying that will happen, but if that were to happen, then technology might follow that would accelerate the process. So the reason that most people don't continue with meditation is they don't get a stunning, dramatic effect instantly. They get a subtle effect that they like, but not like the whole world changes after 10 minutes of practice. But it's possible that with science, relatively quickly the kinds of things that I call enlightenment in an integrated form could become democratized and fairly readily available to um, humanity. Like in a pill or something like that? Well, people often think pill, but I, I have no idea how it would be. But I would more imagine that it would be you already know how to meditate. You've been taught a technique. But we find some sort of uh, non-invasive and relatively simple neuromodulation that allows for uh, dramatically accelerated growth so that what normally would take 50 years might take six months, something like that. So there's still – I don't 
quite see an enlightenment pill, but I could imagine that there could be techno boosts that would dramatically accelerate uh, a standard meditation practice. So what is your life like now? You've been living without boundaries for all these years. Like, what, what is your, What's your daily life like? Is it all rainbows and unicorns? Uh, well, there's still suffering. Um, you know, there's uncomfortable experiences, and then there's challenges that go with that. But at least I know I have a tool that I can always pull out to, you know, help with that. I still have challenges in becoming an admirable person in terms of my behavior. So Really? Like sometimes you're a jerk? A lot. Really? Yeah. I mean, but not nearly the jerk I would have been otherwise. What kind of jerk do you have? Oh, irresponsible, mostly just lazy, you know, um, I'm... I procrastinate a lot. Yeah, I read that you you went to go see a shrink over... Yeah, 18 months of therapy. And that plus the meditation did help. It made a... Well, hey, hey, I got a book. I got, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it. It happened. And it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't somewhat overcome my procrastination thing. I had a cherry contract, what, 30 years ago. Simon & Schuster came to me, a senior editor with like a $50,000 advance to write a book. It was a lot of money back then. Couldn't, a lot of money now. Couldn't freaking do it. Could not freaking do it. Even though you were enlightened. Yeah, because <laughs> I was still struggling with my procrastination behavior. So it took more years of practice. And remember I said uh, behaviorally oriented accountability and support structure. I didn't go to a psychiatrist in order to find out more about myself or to be a happier person. I went for behavior mod. He gave me small manageable doses of assignments, and I either did them or didn't do them. I used the practice to help me, and it dramatically improved my procrastination habits. But, you know, like... Hi, my name is Shinzen, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. I I know I'll always be a recovering procrastinator, but the combination of therapy and a behaviorally oriented therapy, not like talk therapy kind of stuff. That I'm not denigrating that. That could be useful for a meditator also. But I needed behavioral orient, behaviorally oriented. So the combination of the practice and that really made a difference. So. I would have been such a procrastinator that I might have been a street person or, you know, I would be miserable, okay? So, yeah, I still struggle. But um, there's vast improvement as the result of the practice and other factors. And what about relationships? You married? Cats? I was I was married um, and we're still best friends. We talk all the time. Uh, we didn't have kids, we weren't interested in that, but uh, she's also, oh, she's amazing. Shelly Young is her name. She, you can find her website. She is a kick-ass psychotherapist who uses my techniques plus therapy and just gets incredible clinical results. So why, your meditation techniques, so why, uh, we, but you got divorced. Yeah, Um well, it wasn't we, – we got a, an annulment uh, – not an annulment, a, a summary dissolution because it, this was back in the crazy days when it was an open marriage 
And we discovered that actually doesn't work very well. Um, so we decided that we would just change on paper, but we didn't really change in our relationship all that. Much. But you don't live with her? No. No, because I'm too busy with other product, projects. So we talk, um, and I'm very proud of her. So I guess I guess what you're doing is kind of knocking enlightenment a little bit off of its throne and putting it into the real world. I mean, you're you're a guy who owns his flaws and and still has had this experience that continues to grow for you. And I think you'd find that most people that are willing to talk about enlightenment, a lot of people with it won't talk about it for very good reasons. And then some of us just don't mind talking about it. Um, people that talk about it, you'll mostly find they'll tell you a lot about their struggles and failures. And the re- the good reasons that you mentioned that people don't want to talk about it is because... Um, well, let me count the ways. <laughs> go ahead. I'll let you count uh, Well, first of all, everyone already has it. And so one of the signs that you're enlightened is that you sort of see everyone as that and so, really, there's not that much difference. What do you mean everybody already has it? Well, I said it's just being aware of the first 200 milliseconds of every ordinary experience, and everyone has those 200 milliseconds. They may not be aware of it, but there's always that primordial perfection that precedes each ordinary moment in everyone. An enlightened person doesn't just see it in themselves. They see it in everyone. So there's not really that much difference. So, I mean, there is, but there isn't. And sort of, it seems weird to talk about it as existing on this side and not on that side, mm. when you see it on all sides, if you see it at all. And then it's not so much, you, you said attained or achieved, I think. And I, you know, I said, yes, but achieve is not exactly the verb I would use. Um, it's more like a losing of something mm-hmm. than a getting yeah. of something. Uh, I was struck, and I've brought it up a lot in this in, in my podcasts. Uh, a Tibetan teacher was on who said that the, the English translation of, you would know this better than me, but the English translation of the way the Tibetans talk about enlightenment is a, an uncovering and a bringing forth. That's right. So you've just noticed what was always there. Um, so... You know, and then it makes it sound like another thing that you're adorning yourself for status, mm. and it's it's it doesn't really give you status. It gives you the opposite of status. It gives you like <laughs> primordialness. <laughs> um, it doesn't seem like a like a status thing, but as soon as you talk about it that way, then it's like, well, this one's more enlightened than that one, and my teacher's more enlightened than this other teacher, and well, I'll never be able to get enlightenment because I've never been able to get uh, my shit together in any way at all, etc., uh, etc. Et so it just sets up a whole misconception about the nature of the thing. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If, if you play your cards close to the vest and don't talk about your experiences, then there's 
not a real frank dialoguing. If you do talk about it, it sounds like you're bragging. I see your point. Um, this has been amazing. I just want to make sure I want to look at my my geek geeky little list of questions that I drew up for you make sure I didn't miss something that I want to hit. I'm, I know I'm going to miss a lot of things. All right, let me just ask you one last question. This may be a fun place to end it. Your book is filled with paragraphs that um, <laughs> just um, I read them and I would write on the side of the page, okay, I need to get him to translate this. So let me just give you one of these paragraphs. I'm kind of picking it at random here. When a body worker massages you, that person's fingers move through the substance of your muscles and transfer energy into them. This works out the kinks and lumps in the substance of the muscles. This is a good analogy for the flow, capital F, flow of impermanence. When you let impermanence work on you, the energy in its waves and vibrations softens the substance of the muscles. This is a good... Uh, oh. Sorry, sorry. I'm re- re- when you let impermanence work on you, this energy in its waves and vibrations soften the substance of consciousness, works out knots in your soul. It breaks up the coagulated places in all your senses, visual, auditory, and somatic. This is impermanence as a purifier, something that breaks up blockages, cleans out impurities, refines the ore of who you are. As this is happening, it may seem as though consciousness is becoming porous. Within that porosity, you can feel a Nietzsche, which is another wave, a word for impermanence. You can feel a Nietzsche's waves and vibrations churning up gunk from the depths of your soul. They push gunk up, digest it, and excrete it from your being. You can feel your senses being scoured by the flow of impermanence. The cleansing of the doors of perception is not a poetic metaphor. It's a palpable reality. That's pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> and and as you said before, uh, when you talked about your frustration with some of your teachers um, wondering whether they were trying to sound poetic, uh, I got a little bit of that. I mean, I admire the writing. It's good writing. Um, but I have a little trouble penetrating. Sure. Um, in your own practice, have you sometimes had an experience where things get sort of wavy or vibratory, that kind of thing? Has anything like that ever happened? Well, I don't know what, exactly what you mean by that. Oh, it's like your body seems to sort of be like seaweed in a tide pool or maybe your your visual experience sort of pixelates and scintillates a little bit. Here's what happens to me a lot, and I don't know if it qualifies. Um, about a year and a half ago, I started to do a little laboratory experiment on myself where I went up to two hours a day of meditation. Wow, some, some that's of, terrific. Thank you. It's been a pain in the butt, um, uh, but it's been cool. And sometimes I'll do a long sit, uh, you know, like 90 minutes or something like that at the time. And um, and I'll start with really just doing a, a body scan where I s- intentionally sort of soften and relax <laughs> parts of the body over and over. Um. And that will often create uh, really good waves of physical feeling. So I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but I get that quite a bit. A, a sense that sensation is sort of moving yes, through you. Yes, a positive sensation. Because it's, like a, it's a little bit like taking the drug ecstasy. I don't know if you've uh, ever done that. but That was after my time. Okay. I, I definitely tried everything we had in the 60s. Gotcha. <laughs> But this was, uh, that was after my time. Um, Okay, so there's this 
experience that has two characteristics. It's pleasant, mm-hmm. and there's a fluidity That's to what it. I, yes. And is it found only in your body, or when that's happening in your body, if you were to sort of close your eyes and look at the darkness or brightness, might there be some <clears throat> waviness there? You might not remember. Don't know. Uh, next time it happens, yeah, though. Yeah, next check. time, look for that. You might notice that that same wavy quality um, will tend to infect the other two senses. The visual sense will tend to get a little bit that way also. And uh, even the auditory sense. Now, let me ask you another thing. You've probably noticed in your own practice that uh, you can have mental talk. You, most people report a lot of that. But you may have also had experiences where the surface mental talk became muted and there wasn't really uh, incessant conversation, but just sort of an undercurrent of stirring. Have you ever had an experience like that in your meditation? <clears throat> I think so, but it's pretty rare. But you have some experiential sense of what I'm talking about. Uh, no question when I get concentrated to the extent that I get concentrated, the chatter slows down. And then, But then you might notice that it doesn't completely go away. It's There's just sort of a, an undercurrent or a, a, a whisper or a... A, a kind of, I would call it a subtle stirring in mental talk space where you would normally have heard your mental talk. There's just sort of like a shimmering going on. I'm not sure that I could see what you're describing as clearly as you're describing it. Right. Next time the mental talk comes to a relative quiet, listen, and you you may hear something that is like a whisper, but it's not really formed words. It's more like just a stirring in mental talk space where the mental talk had been. So you could parse that as coarse mental quiet, or you could parse it as a kind of vibration in what had previously been an ordinary auditory experience. So you've already experienced some fluidity in your body as the result of long sits. I'm going to have you look and see if it uh, infects your visual experience at all. Um, It does tend to do that. And that sort of undercurrent of um, subtle stirring and mental talk space that some people report as a problem. It's like, I can't get it to be completely quiet because there's still this sort of... Well, you can interpret that as oh, I can't get it really quiet. But an alternative interpretation is that it's a subtle vibratory auditory flow experience. It's just sort of shimmering down there. So you know what positive feedback is. Um, The more you focus on something, the more prominent it becomes is one form of a positive feedback loop. Well, At first, you get these little hints, little hints in body experience, visual experience, and auditory of something that's a little more wavy uh, or a little more vibrating than what you had previously experienced as the rock-solid stability of the inner and outer senses. It's just a hint of movement. 
the more you focus on that, the more pronounced it becomes. At some point, it becomes so pronounced that you find yourself uh, gibbering the kind of thing that I wrote there. <laughs> I don't think it's gibberish. It's intriguing. That's why I asked you about it. <clears throat> well, it, I, I can see how it would sound like gibberish to someone. Um, once again, my defense is, I'm just trying to call it as I experience it. <laughs> right. And that's how it comes out. <laughs> I'm sympathetic to you. I'm envious and sympathetic at the same time. Well, I gave you four factors that I say, uh, if you keep them up for your whole life, you have a high probability of success. And I think you have all those factors in place. So that envy will turn into um, just an understanding at some point. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. That'll, that, it's highly probable at some point in your life that's going to be your ongoing reality. Now, I'm not the first person to poetically gibber about this experience. We call it technically banga, B-H-A-N-G-A, which means dissolution. And it's known in other traditions. For example, T.S. Eliot got the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1944 for writing a poem called The Four Quartets, which is amazing to me considering that I sincerely doubt that any of the judges that gave him that prize understood what that poem was actually about. But they still recognized it was a monumentally important poem. But you would have to be a meditator to really understand that, well, it's four quartets, it's many voices. But the deepest voice uh, in that poem is a description of the awkward intermediate stage um, as you're starting to dissolve. But Eliot was a Christian, so he gave a Christian metaphor. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease. If we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires, if to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars. He's talking about the three persons of the Holy Trinity because he was Anglican, so sort of Catholic. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, okay? Them, the Trinity working on the human soul by dissolving it back into this energy and the quaking and the, and the freezing and so forth. So um, that's actually a poem a, from a, a completely Christian perspective about the soul being purified um, by this dissolution into shaking and quaking. 
What a pleasure in sit, to sit and talk to you. This was really fun. My pleasure. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.